Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Social Work Radio with me, your host, Vince Peart. Once again, and always, we are joined by our co-host, Tilly Baden. Tilly, my friend, how the devil are you? How have things been since you were last aboard the good ship SWR? Hello, everyone. Well, I've had quite a busy week, actually. So I've been in London um, for the last few days. Um, I'm back now, but I spent the weekend with one of my oldest best friends, um, Nikki, and her her partner, Ben. So I went up to stay with her for a few days. Uh, We had a really, really good time. Um, Obviously, a lot to catch up on. But the main purpose of the visit was to buy an outfit for my friend our mutual friend is getting married in september so we're going out to spain um, to to speed with her for the wedding and it's a jewish hindi fusion wedding so it's very exciting i've never been to a jewish wedding before nor a hindi wedding before but as part of the hindu celebrations we had to have like a sari or an indian outfit or something so Obviously, where I am in Dorset, I've not really got much chance of getting yeah. an Indian <laughs> outfit, considering we are pretty much a white county. Um, so I went up to London and we did some shopping and I've got myself this. Well, it's called a Lenga, um, but it's pink and sparkly and really heavy, actually. It's really heavy to wear, um, but I'm so excited. It was I'm really looking forward to the wedding, but it was really nice to be away um, just for a few days. Um, Went to see Grease the musical as well in the West End, which was amazing. I love a musical. I love any sort of live. What's your favourite song from Grease? Oh, all of them. Uh, To be honest, the mega mix at the end, because after they'd finished the show, they then had the audience sing along uh, for the Grease mega mix. So believe me, I was up on my feet singing along at the top of my lungs with no care in the world. So, yeah, it was a really, really good weekend. And yeah, I didn't think about work the whole time I was away. So you'll be proud of me for that. I am proud of you. Congratulations. Award yourself 400 happy points. Oh, brilliant. Or Harry Potter points, maybe. Well, well, happy points. The reason I said that is um, I took a good friend of mine to my hometown, Alston, on Saturday, and I was telling her some stories about some characters. And you know what it's like when you grow up in the countryside? You get characters, Tilly, don't you? You You do, The countryside breeds a certain certain character you simply just don't get in the city. And there was this character who was an icon when I was growing up called Happy Steve. And his name was Steve and he was always happy. So that's how nicknames work in the countryside. You know, Candle Ted was called because he made candles. Mustard Jeff has the name because he made mustard. And, uh, you know, Happy Steve was happy. And Happy Steve used to be well known. He used to go, you know, whenever he did anything good, he would go, award yourself 400 happy points. So I'm going to start, I'm going to start taking a little bit of Happy Steve's ethos into my life so there we I go till you award yourself 400 happy points yes please thank you very yes, much you can. how have you been over this last week yeah good good i'm rampant i'm doing well um i went to see oppenheimer on friday following your recommendation you will be happy to know as well that uh, I did not take any pocket steak, pocket salmon, or any foodstuffs about my person. The only food I bought was uh, cinema issued. I had a gentleman's choice, large popcorn, half and half, and a ginger ale. Excellent. Well done. I'm so proud of you, Vince. Well, I had a chat with the lady, the lady that I accompanied to the cinema. Maybe she accompanied me. Maybe she was the lucky one. Um, So she'd listened to the podcast and uh, she she agreed with your point. She says, if any other man I went to the pictures with had done that, I would have found it strange. But she said, actually, it would have been right in keeping with your character. And I had a bit of an existential crisis there thinking, I wonder what it is about my character. Uh, and then the credits rolled and the film started and I swiftly forgot about that. Amazing. Was this a date by any chance? Ben? No, not a date, is it? You know, not a date. You know, just... But- what there's what what is wrong with a man going with a female friend to the cinema on a friday night and enjoying a half and half popcorn i mean that sounds like a date i might have to pry into this more off air because i it's won't put date. you on the it's spot not, on the air. it's just I, it's just yeah. it's a, it's a, you know 
There was no heavy petting in this. There was no petting of any type, let alone heavy no. petting. There was no, there was no light petting. Um, you know, I, uh, there was, there was, you know, there, there may have been a, a touched hand at some point as I was perhaps passing the popcorn or, you know, um, showing other directions somewhere, but that was the only, that was the only, uh, physical contact in the pictures in the dark of the movies. Okay. I'm going to pry into this more often. There'll be no prying. There'll be no, there'll be no prying. You know uh, I'm nosy. I'm a social worker. It's my job to be nosy. Um, I can't. Well, and I'm a social worker and I adhere to GDPR. Okay. Well, I will. Confidentiality. The confidentiality of the picture house on a Friday night. It doesn't exist. Not even a thing. But um, anyway. <laughs> Oppenheimer was good. I really enjoyed good. Oppenheimer. Yeah, it's um, such a good film. Yeah, it was excellent recommendation. Aside from that, I've um, I've been getting into mango. I mean, the fruit mango. Yeah, yeah, mango. I've been getting into the fruit. I always, um, I never dabbled in mango before. It always, uh, it put me off. I was always sort of, uh, you know, I didn't really know how to tackle a mango. I, so I used, I used to, I used to buy mango, but always you know you get the pre-packaged type you generally get yeah yeah, you generally get mango in free forms you know you get it in cubes or a finger of mango i preferred a finger of mango to be honest i I like i like the nice curved finger of mango was the way i would have mango you sometimes can't get that though um but i saw a youtube video the other day on about exotic fruits i suppose a mango is an exotic fruit and it showed me how to prepare them but it was like a three slice method and i thought you know what i'm gonna have a go at that and since I have Tilly, I've been having a mango a day. The manga man. That's what I'll be. I'll be the manga man. The mango <laughs> I mean, man. there are worse things that we could call you. So, um, yeah, let's like stick it. with that. But I wouldn't take a mango into the pictures, though. I wouldn't take food that would be sticky on the fingers. No, that's probably wanting to avoid sticky fingers. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Well, there'd be no petting. If I was up for petting, you know, if if I was going to be petting a woman in the cinema, I wouldn't be doing it with mango juice all over my hands. No, there'd be evidence, wouldn't not. there? There'd there be evidence be. then. Yeah, you've, been, and- you've been mangoed. <laughs> yeah, and a woman would be pretty cross if you got mango juice all over her clothes. So, exactly, yeah. exactly. Imagine imagine getting back on a night and your parents, if you've got, if, what is that stain? On your tabard, it's mango. Yeah, it's not tabard. Not, I don't know. I don't know what women wear. <laughs> That's like what dinner ladies wear at school. Yes, yeah, the kind of woman I'm taking to the picture house. I'm ta- I'm going to. The, I'm going to the picture house with a woman. And do you know the other good thing about a tabard? Um, plenty of pockets so she could smuggle my food in for me. Oh no! Oh dear! Where is this? Podcast? Like a pack horse. Like a not a drug mule, not not a not a, an airborne drug mule, but a picture house mango mule. That's the kind of woman I'm after. Well, um, I I think you'll be searching for a long time if that's the. Woman I don't know. I'm not sure. I think there's many a woman out there who would love to be taken to the picture house on a Friday night in a tabard with a couple of mangoes in her front pouch, like a joy. She'd be like a kangaroo. You know, a kangaroo has a joy. That would be um, my mangaroo. Excellent pun. Right. Um, Shall we get on with some social work topics then? Well, Um, we've got to read out the reviews first. Oh, okay. Well, let's hear them. We've had a review in this week. So, listeners, as always, if you like to leave a review, we will read it out on next week's show. This week's review comes from Busy Mama 01. Busy Mama 01. I like that. Um, She's a busy mama and she's the first one. She says, great resource, five stars. I am so glad I found your podcast. It is wonderful to hear your perspectives about social work. I have been a case manager slash social worker for people with developmental delays in the USA for the past 30 years. It is good to know social workers around the world can connect and relate to each other. Keep up the great work. What do you think Aww. about that, Tilly? I love that. Thank you, Busy Mama 01. That's um, that's a lovely review. And yeah. it's so good that we get to reach such a large audience. So um, our podcast isn't just for, for people in the UK like you and I are. It's for mm. all over the world. And I'll tell you what's really humbling about um, reviews like this. You know, Busy Mama's got more experience in social work than you and I combined. And yeah. it's really, really great. And I think what's brilliant, and, you know, ever since I first started blogging about social work, some... God, eight and a half years ago now, 
the the most humbling thing well there's there's two things that always humble me firstly is is the reach the fact that so many people you know read our stuff and listen to us and follow us across social media and secondly just how universal it is that we can be sat here talking about these things and we reach um social work news in the last week 140 different countries people in 140 different countries read our stuff which is amazing so to busy mama and all you listeners out there who tune in on a weekly basis Thank you ever so much. Right, Tilly, should we go for this? Should we move away from the mango and reviews and get on with the, uh, what we're here for? This is what you came for, some podcasting about social work. Should we do this? We should, but it's a less cheery topic. So we'll have to tone down the mango-ness and mm. move on with a, a, well, slightly sadder and more serious topic. No more fruity talk. Deal? Deal. Right. So this week, guys, it hasn't been me that's been stirring up controversy for once, for once. You know, I've been relatively tame this week. Instead, uh, one of our uh, columnists, Maisie McDonald, she wrote a piece, and we'll get into this, Teddy, whether you agree with it or not. But um, yeah, I'll give my views later on that one too. So Maisie McDonald wrote a piece with, with a somewhat controversial title in it, and it, it's rubbed some people up the wrong way. And I'm, I'm not going to say rightly so, I'm just going to say it has rubbed some people up the wrong way. And her piece um, is all about, it's the message actually, I'll just read out the message from it. So her headline is, Stop Leaving Your Children With Boyfriends You Hardly Know. And I'm just going to read out a couple of passages. Guys, if you want to read this, just head over to mysocialworknews.com. It should be one of the top articles on the homepage. If not, simply search for Maisie McDonald in the search bar on the top left or search for the article itself, which is titled Stop Leaving Your Children With Boyfriends You Hardly Even Know. And I'm just going to read out a couple of paragraphs from this. Maisie says, over the past few years, I've seen too many cases where children are left in the care of a mother's boyfriend, a man who is not their biological father and is often more or less a stranger. Many times these women believe they are in love, entranced by the honeymoon phase and blinded by trust that may not have been earned. I'm not saying all boyfriends are bad. In fact, there are plenty of wonderful, kind men out there who would never dream of hardening a child. But there's a real danger in rushing into relationships, especially when you've got children involved. Your children look up to you. They trust you to keep them safe. Their childhood should be filled with love, laughter, and fond memories. They should never have to suffer the emotional, physical, or sexual abuse at the hands of someone you invited into your home because you were lonely or in love or simply wanted a bit of fun. I've sat with countless children, their eyes wide and haunted, who bear the scars of their mother's mistakes. I've held the hands of little boys and girls who've learned the hard way that the world is a scary place far too soon. Each one of these cases breaks my heart. Each one was preventable. If only their mothers had shown a little more caution and care. Here's my plea to you. Take time to truly know someone before introducing them to your children. As a social worker, it's my job to protect children and support families however I can. It's a responsibility that I don't take lightly and neither should you when it comes to the safety of your children. Please, for the sake of your children, for the sake of their future, let's break this cycle. Let's make safer choices, smarter decisions and create healthy environments for our children to grow. So I've just read out a few paragraphs from that there, Tilly. I mean, the article's guess around maybe 900, 900 words long. So obviously you've read it and I would encourage our listeners to do the same. It has polarized people or listeners. So do go into it with an open mind. And I fully accept that some of you might agree with it. Some of you might not. Some of you, as I'll come on to show you later, might kind of sit in the middle like I do. But Tilly, I'm going to come to you first on this one. Um, don't worry about offending Maisie. I regularly offend her and she regularly offends me and she is quite a polarizing character. So I'm sure she can't take it on the chin. But what do you think of that article in general? I mean, I love Maisie's work. I think she she loves going for the controversial headlines. I get what she's saying. Um, and I think the message behind what she is saying is true. Um, there is a responsibility as a parent to look after your children and you do need to exercise caution. Um, I know it's rubbed people up the wrong way because then there's that victim blaming stance that that you could be argued is, is kind of fitting with this article. But I don't think that's the message that she was going for because no one can know someone 
truly um a hundred percent and no one goes into these relationships thinking that they're going to be with someone that's going to harm their children you go into it because of the stage of your life that you're in and you're you're wanting to make a positive connection with someone so it it is a really hard topic to unpick but I I so I support her message and I think there does need to be an onus on parents to safeguard their children that's that's your job as a parent but equally people get themselves into so many situations that we can't be blaming them for that i get both sides of the argument i genuinely do um and it really has polarized our community um well it's polarized people in the comments i think the vast majority of people who read this did agree with it and you can kind of tell that by the clicks and the likes and the shares so it's had a massive amount of engagement i mean this has been engaged with by about quarter of a million people over the past weekend lots of likes lots of shares and when people have shared it the message has universally been a positive one i.e they've agreed with it and they've agreed with the message the people that have disagreed with it have tended to say that to blame women for the abuse that their children suffer at the hands of men in their life is victim blaming and that the message should be men stop targeting vulnerable women and abusing their children and I 100% get I get both positions and the reason I get both positions Tilly is I, I genuinely think it's both I think it's both and I'll tell you why if we pin 100% of the blame on mothers and you know I am saying mothers listeners but it could be fathers in this situation but the truth of the matter is as hard as it is for it to accept at times in a society that strives to be equal the vast majority of children that are sexually abused murdered and harmed by respective non-birth parents the vast majority of that damage to them is done by men that's true isn't it tilly that that's simply a fact we're not we're not taking a position there we're just pointing out a fact are we not yeah it's a statistic yes so that's all i'm saying the list is so i'm using the term boyfriends it's just because in the majority but if you want to you know switch that around to suit your situations and your end that's absolutely fine we're just using that term here because it's 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 factually far more common for that damage and you know abuse and neglect to be perpetrated by men so i think tilly if we blame women for this then rightly rightly that does that can be accused you can be accused in that situation rightly so of victim blaming because you say well actually the whole responsibility is on you to protect your birth children from new men that are coming into your life and i think if you go down that route entirely not only is it victim blaming but i think it also kind of absolves the men of the damage they're doing would that be fair to say Absolutely. Yeah. They need to take responsibility for what they've done. Exactly. So I don't think you can go down that route. However, and here's the but, I think it is equally damaging to go down the route that, well, actually, we're not going to place any burden of responsibility on women at all, or men at all, whoever's bringing new partners into their children's life, because ultimately, it is your responsibility as a parent to look after the children in your care. That includes doing what you can do best by them, but it also includes protecting them from harm. And I worry that if we go down the route of the messages, we can't we can't blame victims at all. We can't criticize victims at all for the abuse they've suffered. Well, that absolves parents of fundamentally basic safeguarding duties for their children now to me it is not unrealistic to say to people you need to be more careful about the people that you invite into your children's lives you need to do background checks you need to consider sarah's law and claire's law checks and we'll get into discussing them a bit soon you need to maybe ask around a bit, try and speak to this person's friends and family before you invite them into the home. You need to be a bit more mindful. You need to be waiting six months until you've introduced someone new to your children. You don't need to be leaving them alone. You really need to check out the background. You need to watch out for these signs. If they're violent or dangerous with you, then you shouldn't be leaving them around the children. For me, it can be both, Tilly. For me, it can be both. And it does not seem unreasonable at all. I think that headline isn't unreasonable be honest with you i know it's rubbed some people up the wrong way but the message stop leaving your children with people you hardly well take boyfriends out of there just put the message stop leaving your children with people you hardly even know i don't think that's a controversial message or have i got it wrong telly 
No, it's not a controversial message. If you left them with the stranger down the pub that you just thought to yourself, oh, well, I need to have some childcare for a bit. Oh, here's a random person. Let's leave the children there. Then that would be a dangerous thing to do. It mm-hmm. should make no difference whether you're in an intimate relationship with them or not. It it goes with is family members, with friends. Well, not family members, because hopefully you would know your family members, but other friends or acquaintances, neighbours, associates. Yeah, you, you've got to be careful. They are your responsibility. So is it victim blaming to ask mothers to do more to protect their children from their new partners who are non-biological parents? No, I don't think it is. I think any, as long as you're asking them to do reasonable checks, no one's asking them to be uh, unrealistically vigilant. One wouldn't ask a parent to do a full social work assessment of every partner, are No, no. We're not expecting parents to do a risk assessment, are we, a formal risk assessment? Exactly. There's got to be some trust and reasonableness. If you're in a relationship with someone, you've got no reason to believe that there's anything untoward with them. Then there there comes a point where they are going to be involved in your child's life. But it's not victim blaming to ensure that you've taken reasonable steps to make sure that they're an okay person. And certainly if they're showing signs that they're violent towards you or they're involved in drugs and alcohol or they've got loads of mental health problems those toxic trio traits that we see within child protection that actually you take extra safeguards to make sure things are okay before leaving your child in their care and this is where it gets a little bit more complicated doesn't it because i have worked with many women who've been the victim of horrific abuse and they've genuinely felt that remaining in the relationship was better for protecting the child and sometimes tolerating the abuse was better for protecting the child because you know there've been threats that the abusive partners would kill themselves kill the children kill the partner that they would do horrific things that they would brick windows set the house on fire if that relationship ends you know, I've worked with some mothers who have um, you know shared concerns that the abusive partner would go and attack their parents friends and family and so on so that's that's when I think we have to be mindful of victim blaming, of, of blaming yes. women for staying in the relationships. And I think that's where it comes into. I think that's where it can be very, very difficult. And, and again, that's where I get some of the criticism for how Maisie McDonald phrased that article, because it. I think the risk is that it, the article made it seem like that's a very easy thing for women to do. But if you're in that relationship and you don't know the risks of that relationship and then the relationship's live and that person's in your family home, it become become very, very difficult to extract yourself from that relationship, no matter what damage is being done to you and no matter what damage is potentially being done to your children because that partner potentially has a significant amount of control over you. Yeah, it's certainly not easy and that's what, and I would never, ever, blame or expect someone to leave a partner that's in that situation because Mm. that's that's it's impossible sometimes and that's where your social work hat has to come on and and Mm. you think right well who is it that you're supporting and if you're in child protection you're there to protect the child and that's sometimes when steps have to be taken to safeguard children when the parents that's when we step in that's when the knock on the door comes Police yeah. referral knock on the door the next morning, and that's when you end up with that age-old question of: Are you going to prioritise your children over your new partner? We've how many times have you and I been there? Oh, so many times, and it's heartbreaking because it's never as simple as that. As you say, walking away from someone that's making threats to to you and your family and friends—that's can be an impossible situation to extract yourself from. Is this issue a call for more affordable childcare? I ask that because, you know, this this story garnered a, a great deal of attention online over the weekend. And more than once people were mentioning that, you know, this is a call for more affordable childcare, that often when often when children are left with abusive partners, it may be because the mother has to go out and work or the mother's got other commitments. Uh, is this a call for more affordable childcare so women don't feel that they have to be in these positions when they end up leaving the children with abusive men that they hardly even know. 
I mean, the cost of childcare is extortionate. And I think this is a, a problem that spans way beyond these articles. Um, I've got colleagues at work that are really struggling that at, with, with childcare costs and the availability of childcare mm. as well. It's not just the price, like nurseries and childminders are closing down and um, a lot of them have become financially unviable to, to keep going. So I think this is a problem for for everyone across the board, even if you've got two parents that are together and they're both uh, biological parents of the, to the children and they're both working, that people find that really big struggle. And I think it's probably an issue that's stopping some people from having children, um, thinking that they're not going to be able to afford the childcare if they're going to continue to work. So how do you think we get the balance right here then between being respectful, not victim blaming, but also making sure that children are as safe as possible. Where's the sweet spot? I think it's hard to generalise, and I think it depends on a case-by-case basis. I think Sounds like a cop-out answer. Sounds like another political (laughs) answer from my (laughs) co-host. We've been here before, listeners. Of course we have. But it's true, though. You you have to take things on a situation-by-situation basis. I think parents have to make sure that they do everything reasonable that they can to look after their children. Mm. And equally, we need to be careful not to victim blame as social workers and place too higher expectations on mostly mothers to safeguard their, their children from sometimes really, really horrendous people that are manipulative and coercive, controlling behavior. And that can be really, really difficult for anyone to spot. But should, shouldn't we place the highest expectation on parents? You know, I, 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 I would place the highest expectations on myself as a father. So shouldn't, should we not have the baseline that we expect parents to always act in their children's best interests regardless? Is that not a fundamental tenet of human society and simply being a decent person? Should that not be a baseline expectation that we do expect parents to always do the best? Yeah, and I suppose people's best is different depending yeah. and on that's the, the thing. What's good it? enough? Yeah. What is good, good enough, enough in that situation? It's a difficult one for me, this, because you do have to get that balance and, and, and you make a very fair point because the expectations that you can hold, you know, a, a middle-class family, you've got two parents at home settled, the expectations of them, of their parenting, can actually be higher because they've got more resources than perhaps a, a young single mother who has suffered significant trauma in her own past and is propped up potentially by um, the local authority and, and, and the welfare state to a certain extent and perhaps without that support could not care for a child, perhaps in a, in a deprived area where you know the prevalence of crime and abusive behaviours is far higher. So I think it is difficult to have that high expectation across the board. So when I was asking you that question, you know, I was asking you, you know, knowing it was kind of impossible to have that perfect answer there. So it's somewhat unfair of me. But we do have to strive for a balance at certain at some point and I think when a social worker is involved in these cases, it's relatively easy. Obviously I'm not going to say we don't get, I'm not going to say we get it right all the time because evidently we don't get it right all the time. But what I would say is when a social worker ends up in these situations, it can be a bit easier because then somebody else can come in with a, from a professional background, with experience, look at the wider picture, look at the holistic view of where that child sits, look at the ecological support networks, balance out those risk and protective factors and come to an evidence-based judgment on what can be done. Very, very hard to expect potentially a a vulnerable woman who's suffering from her own oppression in that situation to be able to take herself out of that and look at it in the same way, isn't it, Tilly? Yeah, we can't place those expectations on people. No, no, we can't. Talking about expectations then, um, Sarah's Law and Claire's Law. Now, anyone practising in the UK, I'm pretty sure would be aware of this. But just to quickly go over it anyway, and for our uh, listeners from further afield, like Busy Mama 01, 
Um, there are two basic rights that anybody in the United Kingdom has got in relation to finding out information about a prospective partner. One's called Sarah's Law, which is a child sex offender disclosure scheme. Um, it basically lets anybody formally ask police whether someone who has contact with a child or children has a record for child sexual offences or poses a risk to the child or someone for or poses a risk to the child or children for some other reason. It isn't an exact law, but it's called Sarah's Law. It basically gives guidance on how you can ask police to use existing police powers to share information about sex offenders. There's a law which tend to go sort of hand in hand in that really called Claire's Law, and that's a domestic violence disclosure scheme application. So Claire's Law allows you to apply for information about your current or ex-partner because you're worried they may have a history of abuse and are a risk to you, or request information about the current or ex-partner of a friend or relative because you're worried they might be a risk. So essentially those two um, rules, those two police guidance, Claire's Law and Sarah's Law, allow uh, people in the United Kingdom to request information from police about whether a partner or an ex-partner or a friend or family member's partner or ex-partner may pose a risk on account of offences against children or domestic abuse. Now Tilly, should we embed that as a standard societal norm with every new person we ever meet and wish to become romantically involved with? Well, that's a really hard question. I don't really know, to be honest. Um, I mean, I think they're they're brilliant um, pieces of law or, or policy, um, mm -hmm. and they can really support um, people that are coming to then make an informed choice. Because it's again, it's hard when you're trying as a social worker, certainly in those initial assessments, to maybe even disclose a, the partner's previous crime and, and, and issues that they've had because um, of data protection. So those Sarah's Law and Claire's Law checks just make that process so much easier. Mm -hmm. um, should it be across the board? Should you do it as standard? Ooh, I don't know. I don't know. I'm torn. I'm on the fence. I think. I think certainly if you've got a concern and you've got children then yes absolutely you should do it should you do it as a as a norm does that take away someone's rights and freedoms and romance possibly I don't know where do you sit on on it I'm not really coming to an answer I think it's a difficult one I think it's a difficult one for for several reasons you know in, in the modern era of internet dating, anybody can pretend to be anybody. We don't, we don't meet people how we used to 20 years ago. We don't meet people through mutual friends. We don't meet people down the pub. We don't meet people at dances and nightclubs. We don't really meet that many people through work and college and university like we used to. You know, if you go back, maybe longer than 20 years, you know, if you go back, say, at least 50 years, the vast majority of people that you were getting relationships with, you would you would very likely know or have some sort of connection with our establishment too. So there was that shared kind of background that you would maybe have in the majority of incidences. Now, you can download an app on your phone and you can be speaking to anybody. You're going to meet up with that person. There's no verification. I mean, unless I'm very much mistaken, I can't imagine you're checking people's ID on your first date, Tilly, are you? absolutely not that would be weird there we go there we go so, so you, somebody's turning up and all you've got to go on really is how they look how they present and what they tell you unless you're going to you know have a look in the wallet and eventually it's going to come out and you're going to maybe see the driving license a bank card or something they could literally be anybody they could given you be given you any name whatsoever and even if you did know their name and you did know their real name it takes you to then Google it, and it then takes any of their offences to have been newsworthy. Now, for every offence that the local press pick up on, you know, there's going to be loads that they don't. You know, the local press don't report on every single thing that's in court, and they certainly wouldn't report on multiple no further actions when, and let's get this right here, Tilly, how many times have we worked with families, you and I, when the police have turned up 40, 50 times, maybe I'm not being, I'm not exaggerating that. That genuinely does happen. Police have turned up 40 or 50 times. There's significant evidence of domestic abuse, but because the partner does not support a prosecution, there's very little the police can do. That happens a lot, does it not? 
It does. And to even get to the stage where the police are involved exactly. is a big step. I mean, there's a lot that happens before anyone calls the police. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's not a foolproof system at all. But in this case, that's information the police could potentially disclose via Claire's law. They could potentially mm-hmm. disclose that information. But again, you know, if you're not going to do that check, you're simply not going to know. You're not going to know that history because obviously police information and police records and then what actually makes it so far as to get into court, there is a very, very big gap between the amount of abuse that's perpetrated and the amount of abuse that leads to a prosecution. You're looking at a tiny percentage, aren't you, Tilly? You're looking at a tiny percentage of abusive behaviour is actually lead to prosecution and then a tiny percentage of that well a small percentage of that actually lead to trial and conviction absolutely and i see it from that side of it when i sit as a magistrate um a lot of the things that come through court you think gosh that there is a lot that has happened before it's got to this point and it's and it's hard because we work on the beyond all reasonable doubt and if there's not a third party to witness that or even when there is a third party it's normally yeah. not an independent witness it's a family member or friend it's really really hard to prove so. Yes, and another cross-examination from a skillful barrister their positions may rapidly fall apart before the bench exactly it's a, it is a very high threshold to prosecute and that's why, that's why I'm minded to err more on the side of I think this should be standard practice. This just should just be done. Um, the one thing it damages is romance and trust. You know, if I if I take a nude of the pictures and I'd uh, you know left a bit of mango juice on your tabard, and then I'd learnt the next day that you'd been. You, to be fair, if the mango incident would probably spur your spur your decision to go to the police, I imagine you're thinking, well, you know. <laughs> That's deviant behaviour. There must be something more to this man. I'm, I'm if, not commenting on that at all, Vince. But if, anyway, if I'd have mangoed you in the cinema, and you, if I'd have learned on our next date that you'd have been to the police to do checks on me, I'm not sure that would do to the dynamic. I think that, that in the early stages could potentially kill a relationship, could it not? Because that that's... You know, if, if that had happened to me or someone had done that to you, that if you'd learned that they'd gone for a police check on you, you might end up questioning, well, are they suspicious of me? What the hell have I done? I'm not I'm not sure. I think it could potentially kill romance. It's not it's not exactly the nicest thing to consider. You don't see that in a film like The Notebook or Brokeback Mountain, do you? You don't see uh, you know, Jake Arenas off on the local sheriff's office to, to do a check. It's not it's not the most romantic of things, is it? A, a quick walk down the police station in between the third and fourth date before you consider him putting out. It's not it's a difficult thing to suggest, is it not? It is. Yeah, it is a romance killer for for sure. So So I get that. I get I do get yeah. that. I do get it. And you know, I, I do get it's a romance killer, but on the flip side you do it once, then that's it. I just, like a true social worker, I always err on the side of risk management and child protection yeah. and safeguarding. And for me, that has to be paramount here. So I, I I, would say that, yes, on the balance of probability, again, a very social work thing to say, on the balance of probability, if I was, if I was asked to vote in a referendum on this, I would say, yeah, I'm more inclined to agree this should be standard practice in all relationships regardless of whether you've got a suspicion or not. And that's the key. It's very easy for you and I to say, if you've got a suspicion, go down. That's obvious, of course. But the vast majority of times, people won't have suspicions. The kind of men that abuse their partners on a systematic basis are very, very skillful at what they do. And they they will come with smiles under the guise of friendship and then do horrific things to women and children. So if I was asked, which way do I side? I think it should be done, Tilly. I'm going to put you on the spot now. What do you think? Which way are you voting? I think when there's children involved, yes, um, then yes, I think I, I, I would agree. I think it it becomes necessary to protect your children, um, not so much just for yourself. Um, mm. Although I, I understand why people might go down the Claire's Law route, but I think certainly if there's children involved, yes. Have you heard of the Cinderella effect? I have, but do you want to explain it to our, our listeners that might not know? 
Certainly do, listeners. So basically, the Cinderella effect is an evolutionary psychological phenomenon, and it uh, identifies that there are higher incidences of different forms of child abuse and mistreatment by step-parents than by biological parents. It takes its name from the, you know, the, the fairy tale, Cinderella. And that's about a girl who's mistreated by her stepsisters and stepmother. An evolutionary psychologist described the effect as a byproduct of a bias towards kin and a conflict between reproductive partners of investing in young that are unrelated to one partner. So essentially identifies that um, step parents and non-biological parents are far more likely to abuse children who are not biologically theirs than their own children. And there is indeed significant evidence to support this. Do you believe in it? Do you agree with it, Tilly? Well, I think statistically you have to believe in it, don't you? Because the stats back it up. It's an uncomfortable thing to think Mm -hmm. about. Um, But yeah, we only have to look at some of the recent um, child deaths or child injuries that have come across in the media and the majority of them are step parents. So I think it's, you, you can't avoid that. It's an uncomfortable truth. No. I mean, look, the, there, is clear, there is clear empirical evidence to support this. There really is. And look, even listeners, there's anecdotal evidence. When you see, when you see a child death in the papers, more, well more than half the time, there's a step parent involved. The, that, that's just it. You know, there is empirical evidence to support this. Now, I, I fully understand that, you know, there are multiple factors involved in child abuse. There are. You could look at the prevalence of poverty, mental health issues, drug and alcohol issues. The vast majority of time, there's some sort of coercive control of the, of the, of the birth parent involved in this situation. There's abuse of them. Often this behavior is generational. You're often looking at cycles of generational abuse and trauma within that. But if you boil it down to a simple fact, a simple percentage of what percentage of children killed uh, or seriously hurt suffer that damage by step parents or mother or father's new partner, and what percentage suffer that from the hands of their own biological parent, the evidence is clear that the Cinderella effect exists is it not true, Tilly? Yeah, exactly. It is. So that being said, should we as a profession be more used to embedding the risk of partners, boyfriends, girlfriends, who are not a child's birth parent into our assessments as standard practice? Because right now, that is not standard practice. Should we consider that as a standard so you know when you're doing a you know you're saying risk and protective factors would Mm -hmm. we ever be comfortable with every single time that there is a partner who is not the child's biological parent should we always flag that and always consider that as a risk assessment without fail i mean i can't quite believe that it's not standard practice i know i've been out of child protection and social work for a long time now but surely you're looking at every meaningful interaction within that child's life, Um, whether that's a grandparent, cousin, aunt, uncle, friend, neighbour, whoever it is, you've got to look at that child's whole world. And surely if there's a partner, boyfriend, girlfriend that's that's coming into that child's home and and staying there and, and being involved in their life and their care, then shouldn't that be part of the assessment? Well, they are. They I are. They're, they're, you know, <laughs> those people would always be assessment. My point isn't that because that's a given. Obviously, you have to look at every, you know, when, when you do your genogram and eco map, you look at every support and that partner would be there. The point I'm more getting at is, you know, you have risk and protective factors. When you're doing a balance sheet at the end of assessment, you're doing your analysis, you have risk and protective factors. Regardless of if that partner has been known to perpetrate any abuse, should we, as standard practice, identify a risk factor in every single assessment, if it exists, as this child is more at risk because they are living with a woman or a man who is not their biological parent? Oh, okay. That's the point I'm getting. Regardless of whether we know if there's abuse or not, should we always flag that as a risk factor? Because statistically speaking, that is a risk factor that we know there is empirical evidence to support. What would that do if we embedded that and we started potentially labeling 
innocent men and women with you're more likely to pose a risk simply because you're not that child's biological parent should we do that yes or no oh no i don't think we should because it, it depends on the circumstances doesn't it that, i wouldn't want to be labeling that as a standard risk if that's not even the purpose of the assessment there could be i don't know something to do with the child's behavior or mm-hmm. um social situation or education or something that's causing the reason for the child's social work involvement and if you had then as a standard risk that just because they don't have or they have someone that's not a biological parent involved in their life I think that could be really alienating I think it should be a risk if there's concerns around domestic violence or anything like that but not just as a standard I don't think so if there are concerns about domestic violence, should we consider it to be a heightened risk if that person perpetrating the domestic violence is not biological parent? So should we consider domestic violence as more serious if it's perpetrated or certainly more risky to the child if it is perpetrated by a step parent or new boyfriend or girlfriend rather than a biological parent? Or should we treat it equally? I don't know, because then that's that's rating or ranking uh, different forms of abuse isn't it I, but the evidence would the evidence the, the evidence, evidence the show, evidence which suggests yeah. the evidence which suggests that a male perpetrating domestic abuse in that family home is far more likely to do more serious damage to the child if he is not and i'm going to use the word he because vast majority of the time it's men if he is not that child's birth father yeah i mean when you put it like that it it is a risk factor and we should be having that probably as standard yes i i i think i think we shouldn't just label it so i i think you make a very fair point there and it's one that i would agree with if you're working with a family and the risks aren't centered there's no evidence of domestic abuse whatsoever i think it is very very oppressive to suggest that well, we're automatically going to you know paint this man as a risk simply because he's not the child's birth father i mean i i, I work with many many non-biological fathers who are 10 times the father that the birth father ever was the, I, I work with so many non-biological fathers who are wonderful i mean i used to be a, a, a young parents worker you know that was my first job when i started out in social care some 13 14 years ago so i, I know i know fully well you know the truth for that matter but equally we have to respect the evidence base on this and i think if there is domestic abuse in that home we know for a fact that statistically speaking children are far more likely to be serious harmed by violent men if those violent men are not their biological father and we know that for a fact not going to obviously some biological fathers do heinous things to the children ben butler for one off the top of the head ben but ben butler killed his own daughter ellie butler you know that's just one that's coming to my head because it's a high profile case but i think I think we should perhaps consider this more fully than we do in social work. I really do. I think we know it exists, but I don't think we go as hard on it as we should. No. And I think it's a it's a tricky subject for social workers to broach because it's we're horrible. all about yeah, anti-oppressive practice and anti-labeling and working with people as individuals. But actually, statistically speaking, we we do need to be more mindful of it. Well, let's finish on that point. That's a good point to finish on then. What is the risk of stifling debate around this? Because obviously, you know, when when Maisie wrote that piece, the concern was that this was victim blaming. And some people were even saying, oh, she shouldn't have written that. And I was thinking, yeah, I know it's, you know, I know it could be taken one way, but the fact we're even having this debate is very, very important. So I think we should be able to discuss these things because ultimately, everybody's discussing this because they want the best for the children and the women at the heart of this matter and want to prevent abusive men yes we might have different ways of doing it but let's work together and try and work out the best way let's just not shout let's just not shout each other's down because if we shout each other down then that excludes 50 percent of the people from the debate so what do you think is the risk of stifling debate and attention of these kind of dangers it's a slippery slope, isn't it? We we need to be having these debates in all areas of, of practice, always when there's something contentious. As you say, we are there to do the best for the people that we are supporting. And if someone has got a different idea to, to you, then 
actually we still need to hear it because their idea you can take things from different people so I, I think there is a huge risk if we stifle debate yeah and I fully agree with you as well and, and you know you know me well today I am a man <laughs> of I like rules I like evidence-based in my practice I do like empirical evidence and I think we need to get far better at applying that yes I know that social work is a human science. I know it's based in psychology, but psychology is based in facts as well. And I think in social work, we have to get far better. I think I think social work is we kind of lose our way away because it, at university, you will have done a, a statistics module, Tilly, yeah? I think so. I can't you really remember. So? Did you, <laughs> I think, I, think I did. Yeah, oh, I, I, I did. Yeah, yeah, did. We, did, we did research. and Yeah, yeah so you yeah, do a research yeah. model and you do statistics, but... We are so poor at using that. And, and, and we almost, I've had many managers tell me off for using research and using statistics because they worry that if you get before a, a, a clever barrister and you're in court and that research is proven to be outdated and you can't defend it, you lose it. But I think that's a call not for stopping us using it. I think that's a call for us getting better at using it and having more time and being able to actually, you know, actually hone our craft and hone our skill and that's why i think things like this are incredibly important and you know if the care review comes into full effect as i hope it does when we get specialist child protection teams i would love nothing more than to go into those specialist child protection teams have a lower caseload and really focus on knuckling down risks and being able to make those evidence-based correct fact-backed and research supported judgment calls in a child's life and if that saves one child from being seriously harmed by their mother or father's new partner then that is a job well done exactly couldn't say it better myself well we should leave it there with high praise indeed um thank you ever so much listeners as always for tuning in we will be back next week where we've got a special ask me anything show it's a quite good one we've got a video coming up of it so uh yeah tune in next week to hear me and telly pulling out questions from a pot and asking a range answering a range of random questions as always you can check out the stories you've been discussing on this week's podcast by heading over to mysocialworknews.com as i mentioned last week we had over two million people on the website over the course of the last 12 months which was amazing and we've published around three articles a day so do head over to mysocialworknews.com as well as seeing articles from me and Tilly and Maisie. You'll see them from our regular columnists, including Matt B, Ashley Campbell, and Millie Glass. And you can also see various different news stories and features. So do head over to mysocialworknews.com. It would also mean a lot if you could consider leaving us a review on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere else where you get our podcast from. Please consider following in the, pro- the footsteps of Busy Mama 01, and we will read your review out on next week's show we'll see you next week until then it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from me